According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Proverbs. However, for the first time, we are now in the fifth chapter of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. We had last week off because of the Schaefer Conference. But resuming now from where we left off two weeks ago, we're ready now to begin a new chapter, Proverbs chapter 5. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are indeed walking in the light and humble under the authority of His truth, gentle for the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your patience towards each one of us and very patiently bringing us along to a a knowledge and understanding that you would have for us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for your faithfulness upon our study this morning. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Get this thing off my neck. Be much more comfortable. All right. Proverbs chapter 5, my son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, that your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That sound familiar? Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. All right, and it goes on. Verse 7, now then my sons, listen to me, and it goes plural, but it starts singular, then goes plural. And really the whole chapter is given over to this topic. All right, the whole chapter is given over. So we'll stop the reading there, and then we'll just kind of go back to the top and take it one atom at a time. Proverbs 5 contains the second of five discourses on fornication in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Remember, we are defining the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs basically as chapters 1 through 9. The first nine chapters of Proverbs, I have given the title, it's my title, Parental Wisdom, all right? And then starting in chapter 10, we have another major section that takes place so much so that, uh, talk about brick walls, so much so as chapter 10 and verse 1 actually has a, a whole new introduction, that is, the Proverbs of Solomon. And so you have a heading that uh, covers chapter 10 and following in that portion, basically chapters 10 through 24, that second portion of the book of Proverbs. We'll handle that as a separate unit. But for the parental wisdom portion in verses one through in chapters 1 through 9, there are five fornication messages, okay? And five messages I find significant. It's like the five books of the Pentateuch, right? Or the five books of, of Psalms. Or how many other sections in the, in the Bible are broken down into five messages? I think there's five dominant uh, discourse messages in the Gospel of Matthew, right? With the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, the uh, Kingdom of Heaven parables, and two others. All right? There's five main discourses that are recorded in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. There's a lot of fives in a lot of places. And so five fornication messages or discourses in uh, this book. And so now this is the second. The first one was really rather short. 
Um, chapter 2 contained the first such admonishment, and uh, we can go back and take a look at that in a moment. But before we get there, just let's look at these first two verses and see how it's introduced. It almost seems um, like it sneaks up on you. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. And that's the, the poetic parallelism we've had several times in the first four chapters. Uh, we understand give attention is parallel to incline or incline your ear. Uh, my wisdom and my understanding, those are in parallel, okay? And we can, we've actually studied all the vocabulary there is in that verse. Purpose clause in verse 2, that you may observe discretion. So the study of the Word of God equips you to discern, right? Like uh, the uh, book of Hebrews talks about through practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And uh, the admonition there that by now you should be teachers of the law and and, uh, so forth. And so, yes, as you grow in the Word of God, you're able to discern things. Not only are you able to discern things, you're able to say things. And you become a conduit for wisdom. You become a source where your lips are going to bless other people. And so we have the, uh, the use of lips there, that your lips may reserve knowledge. Okay, So we have, it shapes how we think and it shapes how we speak. And that's really kind of the introduction to the chapter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it is very parallel to several passages we've already studied in the first four chapters. But what this does is it springboards. The use of lips in verse 2 launches into the rest of the chapter, right? It's almost like David talking to his son here says, by the way, Solomon, speaking of lips, (laughs) okay, here's some lips you better look out for. The lips of an adulteress, all right? So speaking of lips, the lips, so you have the mention in verse 2 that then gets repeated in verse 3 and, and leads to the rest of the whole chapter there, right? The lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. And uh, that's what's going to introduce the, uh, the whole thing here. And it's a, it's a lengthy development from, from verse 3 to verse 23. I mean, man, that's 20, 21 verses, right? All uh, focused on this strange woman. Chapter 2 contained the first such admonishment. We back up a little bit. We'll see it was only four verses in chapter 2. It's much shorter. But when we talk about the benefits for the Word of God, what happens when you hide it within your heart? Um, in 2 and verse 10, it says, Wisdom will enter your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. You're taking the Word of God and you're internalizing. You're letting it dwell richly within you, like it says in Colossians. And discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. It's because the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is a living thing that you're stashing away within your soul. And you may not have your eyes open to see certain things, but the Word of God sees it. And then it says, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness. You have the masculine end of things, and basically, <coughs> excuse me, the, the masculine snares in verses 12 through 15, and uh, wisdom will guard you against those. And then the feminine snares, or the female snares, um, They're not always feminine, but okay. The female snares in verses 16 and following. So to deliver you, to deliver you, and that's the parallel to the verse 12, to deliver you. To deliver you from the strange woman, okay? From the adulteress who flatters with her words. 
So we don't have lips there, but we have the flattery, and that's the speech. That's the, that's the metaphor of lips that we'll see in chapter 5 is addressing the same concept. Uh, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sings down, uh, sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. The end of that road is a tragic ending. Tragic because it's not necessary. And, but it is a one-way path. And notice the escape. None who go to her return again. And so it's, uh, but by the grace of God, unless God's grace gets you off that path, there's only one exit from that path, and that's when you crash and burn at the end. So that was the first of these admonishments, and we had some notes on it, and I uh, would encourage you if you want to go back and review those notes, in particular, talking about the nature of this woman. Uh, she's not just odd in her mannerisms, okay? Uh, she's not strange in terms of weird or... or, or uh, she doesn't have one of those esoteric senses of humor that you don't understand. No, it's strange, um, like strange fire is strange. You've got strange fire, you've got strange women. And the, the definition of strange in its biblical usage, in the Old Testament usage, it means not what the Father designed, all right? If you bring an offering that's not what the Father designed, then you're bringing strange fire. If, you're, if you are involved in women that the Father did not design, then you're involved with strange women. Okay? The Father designed monogamous relationships within the boundaries of marriage. And anything else is strange. Anything else is fornication and harlotry. Okay? And I'm going to stick with those terms for the rest of this book study, probably for the rest of my ministry. I like, um, I like fornication. Okay? I like the word. I like the, the, the word fornication. I like the fact that it's an old English term. It's a term that's not in common use today, except by churchy kind of folks. And, and, and it's, it's a word that, uh, that the world hasn't uh, grabbed onto and misused and turned into other uses like they've done in so many other cases. All right. And so since it, it does stand out uh, and it is so um, descriptive and it is so precise, I like it. And I like to use it, and I like to be blunt with it. Um, I think it's, it serves better than the New American Standard. The Lockman Foundation has chosen to use immorality in so many cases. And unfortunately, I think it ends up being weak given the uh, postmodern age that we live in and given the, the, the loosey-goosey attitude about what's moral and immoral. It seems to be a shifting sand kind of a thing. And, and um, the idea of immorality is, is, uh, is not, even a, not even winked at in, uh, in our culture. So um, I'm going to stick with harlotry as a good old-fashioned term that, that means what it says and fornication as a good old-fashioned term that means what it says. And by the time we're done, maybe even by the time we're done today, but by the time we're done with this chapter, uh, there should be no question in anybody's mind that those terms are absolutely synonymous and interchangeable. That harlotry is fornication. That fornication is harlotry. That they are absolute interchangeable terms. That they are both used to reference the same terms in, in Hebrew, the same terms in Greek, the same concept. Now the vocabulary may be, there is a variety of expressions, but the verbs and the, and the, the cognate nouns from those verbs um, can be rendered either with fornicate or with harlotry, right? To play the harlot, to act the harlot, to engage in harlotry. And, and we're going to prove that because I think 
in, in English anyway, we, um, uh, we, we draw distinctions and, and we, we view harlotry as a professional pursuit, you know, in other words, uh, the, the, the professional prostitute, the professional harlot, someone that's, that's getting paid, all right? And that's not how the Bible handles it. Whether you get paid or not is irrelevant, okay? And, 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 and you know, if you're, if you're fornicating out beyond the boundaries of marriage, then you're a harlot. And you, you have no excuse. If you say, well, I didn't get paid for it, okay, well, then you're a cheap harlot. But you're still a harlot. That's the, that's the, that's the biblical definition, okay? And we're not just picking on women. Men play the harlot more than women. In fact, the verb is used of men three times as much as it's used of women. So we'll see it here. Okay. Um, anyway, chapter 2, just by way of review, um, the Word of God rescues you. Okay? The Word of God rescues you. And are you concerned about the kind of boys your daughter is dating? Are you concerned about the kind of girls your son is dating? Um, well... The mechanism is craft their thinking by the Word of God. Shape their thinking by the Word of God. Transform them so they're not conformed to this age. Okay? If they're shaped by the Word of God, then they're not going uh, to bring someone home like uh, the, um, what was that country western song 10 years ago, 20 years ago? It's probably, oh no, I'm getting old. It would have been in the early 90s, mid 90s, about. Um, I like my women just a little on the trashy side. You know the song I'm talking about? Yeah. All right, shame on you. You shouldn't know that song. That's Okay, it was a very popular country western song at the time. And a little hilarious when he brings this his prom date home to meet mom and dad, okay? Um but that's that's what Proverbs does. Proverbs equips the young person, the old person, every person. Proverbs equips them to have their thinking shaped by the word of God. And uh, whether you're married, you're single, you're widowed, you're divorced, any, any capacity, you need your thinking shaped by the Word of God so you're not led into these snares. All right, so chapter 2 was the first. Chapter 5 contains the second. What are the additional ones? I'll just list them for you. Additional discourses are featured in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. Uh, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 9. Proverbs 6, 7, and 9. And um, chapter 7 is the one that comes closest in terms of length as, as matching the chapter 5 material. You've got 21 verses in, uh, in chapter 5, and uh, you've got 23 verses in chapter 7. And I haven't counted the words, or I don't know which one's actually longer, but probably chapter 7 is longer. In chapter 6, it's verses uh, 24 through 35, so it's not the whole chapter in chapter 6. Uh, there's other things that lead to this in chapter 6 of all the things that the Lord hates. But when you do get to the bottom part of chapter 6, it's the last part of the chapter, 24 through 35, which then kind of spills over into chapter 7, uh, 5 through uh, 27. And then chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. The last one is kind of like ch- the first one, chapter 2. It's, it's just a paragraph. It's four or five short verses, uh, six verses. And... Um, yeah, the final one in chapter 9. By the time you get to chapter 9, it's been said, right? Anything that can be said has been said. And so chapter 9 then forms a, uh, a pretty good 
review. Now, I don't want to read all these for you this morning. Let's just take a short peek at each one just so you can eyeball it. Um, Proverbs chapter 6. And you'll notice um, there's other things in the early part of the chapter dealing with debt, dealing with money, dealing with laziness, dealing with uh, the uh, the vagabond in uh, verse 11 and the wicked person in verse 12. And anyway, all the things that the Lord hates. Um, in that list of six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, they're an abomination to him. And you'll notice uh, none of those are sexual, Okay. Then, uh, but you do reach the portion in 24 through 35 where you see, again, a benefit for the Word of God. You have it bound in your heart, tied around your neck, uh, waking and sleeping 24 hours a day. You should be cycling doctrine, thinking about it. And if, you're, if, you're, if your heart is thinking about truth, then your eyes won't be checking out the, the, the skirts, right? To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. That's Proverbs 6, verses 24 and 25. And whether it's her tongue or her lips or her eyelids, um, you're in danger if, if your thinking is not shaped by the Word of God. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. You want to turn into a loaf of bread? How do you do that anyway? What's that, what's that idiom about? We'll deal with that. For an adulteress hunts for the precious life. See, she's a hunter, and you're the prey, and you don't even realize this. Anyway, so there's a lot more there. Um, basically, can a man, I like verse 27, take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You know, if you take a lit torch and shove it down your shirt, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to get burned 100% of the time. Verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself who does it. See, this is what we call self-destructive behavior. Even secular uh, wisdom has observed that there are certain things you do that are self-destructive. And that's not good. All right, over to chapter 7, verses 5 through 27. Again, if you are embracing the Word of God... If uh, you say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend in verse four. Here's the thing. I think young people get um, get get wrapped up in the intimacy of it. They 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 want to feel valued. They want to feel like someone loves them, that, that there's some kind of a, you know, women especially want to feel that they're 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 loved or they're they're needed or they're valued. Okay. I guess men do too. Um, but um, anyway, we want the Word of God to be our intimate friend. We want the Word of God to shape our, our value and our esteem in God's sight. And then it says uh, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And we'll talk about that vocabulary as well. Does, does she have to be a foreigner? Uh, why, were, why were most of the prostitutes in Israel, why were they foreigners? Why were they Moabite prostitutes or Egyptian prostitutes or Phoenician prostitutes? And, well, because, well, we'll talk about it. I'll even show you a verse because uh, you, you, the Jewish prostitutes were going to be executed. <laughs> uh, you were not to give your daughter to be a harlot. And uh, so that cuts down on the number of, of Jewish prostitutes in the land. But anyway, verse 6 of chapter 7. At the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Okay, so here's 
knucklehead. I call him knucklehead. And because he's a fool, he's a young man lacking sense, and he's going to get involved in things he shouldn't be involved with. If he was focused on the Word of God, he wouldn't be involved with. That's the thing. And this is how he goes. He's in the wrong part of town, passing through the street near her corner. Why is he on that street? Why does he linger at her corner? Because he knows what kind of house that is. He takes the way to her house. He didn't have to go that way. He chose to go that way. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. He had to go four times past that. He kept passing by that house four different times, right? Like, you know, there's a girl in junior high and you like her, and so you're, you're walking past her house and walking past her house and walking past her house, and then, oh, oh, well, I just happened to be in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah, this is the fourth time you've walked past. Okay. All right. I, um, that's all fiction. I don't know what I was illustrating with that, but... Anyway, this, this whole chapter is um, a, uh, a picture of that kind of trouble. Over to chapter 9, the, f- the fifth of these fornication messages. There's five of them in these nine, cha- in these nine chapters. You think God's making a point? <laughs> Something that he's going to give five separate times? You know, it's not to say that these sins are worse than other sins, but these sins will do damage. And, and they will do damage that will last a long, long time, if not the rest of your physical life. You will carry things into your marriage you don't want to carry into your marriage if you fail in this regard as a single person. And you will do damage to yourself, to your future spouse. Um, different applications there. So chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of a city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. (laughs) You know, advertising for idiots. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says. See, she's not particularly trying to target the one that's walking with doctrine. That one's not going to fall into her trap anyway. Got plenty of other victims otherwise. And if today you're walking with doctrine and you're Great, she'll let you go today. Maybe tomorrow you'll be out of fellowship. Maybe the next day you'll be out of fellowship. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. There's always, oh, it'll be fun. Oh, it feels good. Oh, no one will know. Oh, you know. Sin will always convince you that there's no reason not to. When the Bible says there's every reason not to. There's no reason to do it. That's what the Bible says. All right, does not know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You're just the next victim on the list. And after you, there'll be another one. After you, there'll be another one. Don't think you're special. All right, point two then. Proverbs, oh, wait a minute. I had a C I didn't know about. Who put that there? You know, it's interesting. This is not Bible, but I think it's interesting. It shows how the impact that Proverbs had in Jewish literature, the impact that wisdom literature at large had in Jewish thought, because so many of the apocryphal books, they don't belong in the Bible, but they, they, they are patterned after wisdom literature. They, 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 they are modeled after Proverbs. They're modeled after Psalms. There's a lot of of non-biblical psalms, for example, or non-biblical uh, proverbs. 
the, the genre of wisdom literature is much larger than simply the, the Hebrew canon. And so here's one of them. It's not a Bible book. It's called Sirach. Sirach chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. Okay, The longer term of Sirach is uh, sometimes it's called the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Okay? And it's an Old Testament apocryphal text uh, in the, written in the Maccabean era in the intertestamental period. It's, not, um, it's in the Septuagint. I think there's a Hebrew original to it, but it's, uh, or maybe one of the ones that doesn't really have a Hebrew original, was just written in Greek, but either way, what we find is it's very similar to what we have in Proverbs, and it shows, I think it shows the impact that Proverbs had in the life of the Jewish people, uh, whereby even non-biblical writers would uh, write such things. And just in case anyone bring their Septuagint with them this morning, all right, I went ahead and put it on a slide for you then. This is the English translation of the uh, Septuagint. In fact, uh, it's a product uh, out of Logos Bible Software. Rick, ba- uh, Rick Brannon worked on this and several other English translations from the Greek Septuagint. But Anyway, it says, Meet not with a harlot, lest thou fall into her snares. Use not much the company of a woman that is a singer, lest thou be taken with her attempts. Gaze not on a maid that thou fall not by those things that are precious in her. Give not thy soul unto harlots, that thou lose not thine inheritance. Say, it's not the money your parent paying them, it's your soul you're giving up. Look not round about thee in the streets of the city, neither wander thou in the solitary places thereof. In other words, why are you in that part of town? What are you looking around for? Why are you even here? Turn away thine eye from a beautiful woman, and look not upon another's beauty. For many have, should be have, been deceived by the beauty of a woman. For herewith love is kindled as a fire. Sit not at all with another man's wife, nor sit down with her in thine arms, and spend not thy money with her at the wine, lest thine heart incline unto her, and so through thy desire thou fall into destruction. Okay? And I think there's, uh, there's a lot of value in these expressions, particularly because of how it agrees with Scripture related to the heart and how the heart can be snared, how the, the heart can be um, turned, your desire, um, thine heart can be inclined unto her. Her heart can be inclined unto you, you know, the snares that happen there. All right, so... That's enough of the Septuagint. We'll stick with the, uh, or the Apocrypha. We'll stick with the, uh, the five discourse messages here in Proverbs. Now, Proverbs warns repeatedly against the seductress. Proverbs warns repeatedly against the seductress. And I'm going to give you all the terminology for this this morning. Um, it is written to a young man, and so the villain is going to be a woman in every case. Uh, we've talked about this before, though. Feel free to turn it around and change genders. If you are teaching Proverbs to uh, a teenage daughter, then don't warn her against a seductress, uh, although in our culture you probably have to. Uh, warn her against a seducer, okay, a Casanova or some kind of a Don Juan type. Um, and like I say, in this day and age, you've got to warn her against the, the, uh, the heterosexual uh, seducers and the, and even the lesbian seducers anymore, but that's, uh, that's Austin for you, all right? That's where we are. So let's uh, talk about what we have here, OK? 
Okay, the introduction in this chapter, and then we'll get some other other expressions. But she, uh, she's called an adulteress in verse uh, three. And uh, what is this term about? Well, the term tells us that she is a strange woman, but it's translated adulteress in the New American Standard. Literally, it's a strange woman. Literally, it's a strange. I think it's. I think it has Isha in that verse. A lot of them don't. I don't remember if this one does or not. Anyway, so subpoint A, the first of these terms. Basically, we're going to have A, B, C, D, E, and F. A, B, C, D, E, and F. There's a lot of terms for these kind of people. All right. Although there's primarily just one or two verb, one main, couple main verbs, and some cognate nouns. But we'll talk about that. Zara, Z-A-R-A-H, Zara. And sometimes it has Isha in front of it. Sometimes it's Isha, Zara. And we know Isha, right? Because Ish was the man and Isha was taken out of the man. And he named her Isha because she was taken from the Ish. Okay? I have put very few Strong's numbers in this simply because most of these don't have Strong's numbers. Most of these are going to be feminine forms of masculine forms that have Strong's numbers. Okay, and so uh, Zara is the feminine form of Zar or Zur, and that's the one that has the Strong's number attached to it. Um, really, Strong gave the same number; didn't break it down by gender. So, in any event, but I didn't want to list the number and confuse you if you pulled it up. A lot of you are pulling up your Strong's numbers and saying, "Well, hey, that's a different word." Well. It's the same word, it just happens to be the feminine form. Okay? Remember, it's like uh, gato and, you know, we got, in Spanish, you got different terms and you change it to masculine or feminine as you need to. All right. Anyway, Zara, the AH ending on the end, like Isha, Zara, the, uh, the AH ending on the end makes it a feminine singular. And, uh, in fact, the reason why Isha is not necessary, it's, it's left out in most cases, uh, simply because the Zara by itself has to be a feminine singular, uh, strange thing. And so you would call it not a strange thing, but a strange woman as a Zara. And uh, that's the term we had in 2.16, the verse we looked at just a moment ago, chapter 2 and verse 16. It's the, verse that we, it's the term that we have here, the lips of a Zara. The lips of a Zara drip honey. Okay, and smoother than oil is her speech. So look out for those zaras. If you see a zara, look out. Verse twenty of the same chapter has another zara, and it's also paralleled with our second term. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with a zara, or embrace the bosom of a nakira? And we'll see that next. But that's in parallel. The Zara and the Nakira. The stranger and the foreigner. The stranger and the foreigner. And the etymology is different, but the concept is the same. They're not from here. All right? Or if they are from here, their ways aren't our ways. They might be from here. There could be, there could be foreigners that live in the land, and so now they're technically not foreigners anymore. Now they're resident aliens, but they are strange. They are strangers. Their ways are not our ways. Okay? Their gods are not our gods. That's why Israel was warned to cleanse the land of all those folks. They didn't, didn't, God didn't want them to be seduced by all those folks. We have more Zarah 
I guess what's the plural of Zarah? Zaroth. We have more of Zaroth, the plural of Zarah, uh, in chapter 7. Again, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your intimate friend. Okay? We want to have a, an intimate relationship with the Word of God. And then we won't go looking for intimate relationships other places. Right? The girl that has an intimate relationship with her father, that loves her father, that hugs her father, she's not looking to be in somebody else's arms. Okay? Doing other things. That they may keep you from a Zarah and from the uh, Nakira, we'll see that next, the, the foreigner who flatters with her words. Two final uses in Proverbs are not in the parental wisdom section. By the way, that just because we leave the parental wisdom in chapter 10 and we move on to other categories does not mean that Proverbs 10 through 31 is uh, devoid of, of anything related to uh, fornication or, or uh, immorality or, or such. 22.14 is a use. The mouth of a Zerah is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. In 23.33, next chapter. Your eyes will see strange... Nope. Hmm, okay, I'm going to have to look that up. 2333. Mm. Yes, 27. The harlot is a deep pit and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Okay. Possibly. I will double check that one. I will fix that by next week because I can't guarantee it's that verse either. Do you have the Hebrew text up? Are you looking at it right now? Okay. Well, I, I can't hear what you're saying, so don't worry about it. Point, point B. There's a second term, and we've seen it already a couple of times because it's used in parallel with Zarah, and that's Nakriah, N-A-K. R-I-Y-Y-A-H. Nakriah. Nakriah. And I forget where the accent is. I think it's on the Yah. Nakriah. Uh, foreign woman. Okay? She's not from here. And typically, it's a foreigner. And in context, why are you worried about foreigners? Because their thinking is not shaped by divine norms and standards. They've got other gods, and they've got other practices, and those practices are an abomination in God's sight. And uh, this one is uh, much more common than the Zarah terminology that we have to be on guard against. Proverbs 2.16, like we saw a moment ago, where it's in parallel with the first one. Proverbs 5.20, which we also saw already, parallel with the Zarah. Uh, Proverbs 6.24, Proverbs 6.24, where it's not parallel to the Zerah, but it uh, is translated there to 
keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth mouth of the adulteress. That's in 6.24. I'm thinking this may not be the best way to do this. Well, we'll stick with it. All right. What I may want to do is start to color code these. And then when we, when we have the Proverbs up, uh, I'll give a, a different color for Zarah, a different color for Nakirah, give a different color for Zonah, give another color for the uh, Noapheth. Anyway, and if we color code them all, then uh, we can see at a glance when we're going through the text uh, which one is which as we work our way through. Chapter 7 and verse 5 we saw a moment ago, that's parallel with the Zarah. Chapter 23, 27 that's the one you guys were trying to point me to when I was looking for 2333. And then uh, 2713. 27.13. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. Of course, there's a larger context for that. Why would I do such a thing? Why would I take his garment? And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 27. Now, this is the term that we should, this more common than Zarah, and it's the term that they were warned about in the law. Uh, this is the term that was employed in Genesis 31:15, when the daughters of Laban were all concerned with how he had treated them, how he had treated Jacob. You remember that Jacob had worked for, for seven years for each of those two sisters, and then he worked six more years beyond that. So he'd actually worked a total of 20 years in the house of his father-in-law there. And uh, they were concerned that uh, their father had treated them like a harlot, like harlots. They, the father had treated them like um, foreign women, squandering their, uh, their um, bride price and, and the dowry and whatnot of, of Jacob's labor on, on uh, their behalf. And so there's the concern there. Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 10 is the use there. And uh, grab that real quick. Joshua judges Ruth. And particularly since uh, she is a foreign woman, <laughs> right? And she is um, not just any foreign woman, she is a Moabitess. I mean, they were the pinnacle. They were the ones that all the other foreign women learned from. As far as uh, that, that was the gold standard. That was the top of the line uh, for immorality there. Ruth 2 and verse 10 she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a nakriah? I am a nakriah. Now, is she calling herself a, a harlot? No. But that's the term. She's a foreign woman. And more often than not, particularly in the wisdom literature, but also in Genesis and elsewhere, a foreign woman, by implication, is trouble. Okay? Trouble. Like uh, we, t- we say in the New Testament, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be dating an unbeliever. Why? Because they're not from here. And they've got different gods. And they've got different standards. And they don't understand why you've got the views you have on the views you have. <laughs> okay? The Nakriah, by the way, was the downfall of Solomon. 1 Kings 11. So he wrote Proverbs 5, but he didn't apply Proverbs 5. 
King Solomon loved many Nakriyah, many, I guess Nakriyoth in the plural. He loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. I believe she was his first wife, okay, Doug? All right. Loved many foreign women. That's in verse 1. We also have it in verse 8. Um, Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And sacrificed to their gods. So that's the problem, okay? It's not that they're foreign. It's not, I mean, you can marry somebody from Russia or whatever. That's The issue is, if they are harlots, um, whether they get paid for it or not, if they are harlots, look out. Understand that their thinking is not shaped by divine norms and standards. That's why they engage in what they engage in with their bodies, all right? And then seven times in Ezra chapter 10, they came back from the uh, exile, they came back from Babylon, they returned back to the land, and here's Ezra and finds that, the, that half of the nation was married to, married to harlots, married to foreign women. And uh, seven times in that chapter, it became a big problem in Ezra chapter 10. All right, third term. You got those verses written down? Am I going too fast? All right. I don't want to spend a whole hour staring at harlots. But it wouldn't be too bad. I've spent the last two weeks, I think, staring at harlots with the vocabulary of getting this class ready. All right, now we've got zonah. This is actually the, the, the actual word that means harlot. Okay? Um, this is a, the actual word that means harlot. The other ones are just idioms for a strange woman, a foreign woman that functionally mean harlot in the context of, of what they are. But this is the word that's not just functionally in context. Uh, this, is, this is the actual word. It's, it's a noun, uh, sometimes a participle from a verb, but it's uh, the uh, same thing, really, uh, when you come down to it. Zona, the verb zana means to, to fornicate, to, to play the harlot. And so then a zona, or an isha zona, is... Uh, is uh, a girl that does this. All right? A girl that does this. So a zona, Z-O-N-A-H. Z-O-N-A-H. I don't know why so many of these start with Z, but they do. All right. Zara, zona. And then we get to the verb in point F is the verb zona. All right. And uh, this is the, the most common of all the terms. Uh, starting in Genesis 34, 31, remember what was happening there? Uh, Shechem had uh, defiled Dinah, and they took exception to that. This, the brothers did. They said, he's treating our sister like a harlot. And in their book, treating a sister like a harlot was justif- justifying uh, justification to go massacre an entire town. <laughs> all right? That it justified murder to treat, to defile your sister, to treat her like a harlot. And even though he wanted to marry her, well, too late. should have married her first. So uh, anyway, they treated Dinah like a harlot, like a zona in Genesis 34, 31. In Genesis 38, 15, Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, dresses up like a zona. Puts a veil on her face and sits by the intersection where he's passing by, and he didn't recognize her because of the veil on her face. And the way she was dressed 
uh, told him, hey, that's, uh, that's a zonah, right? It gets hard these days, the way all the girls are dressing. Yeah. I asked Titus Kennedy that. We were in downtown Kiev, and it just, man, every girl in town was, was dressing like a zonah. And, and I felt bad for the real zonahs. I felt, you know, how do they, how do they stand out? You know, how do they, I mean, it must be bad for their business. They, you can't tell them apart from anybody. Anyway, there's Tamar in Genesis 38, 15. Leviticus 21. Turn there. Let's turn to Leviticus 21. This, if more people understood Leviticus 21, we'd have a simpler time of things, I think. Leviticus 21. And of course, the unbelievers hate Leviticus. They hate it, they hate it, they hate it. And they usually uh, throw it in your face and say, well, you can't use Leviticus. Leviticus has been replaced. Leviticus is, is expired. Leviticus is old-fashioned. They say, do you eat pork? Do you eat bacon? Well, then throw away Leviticus. That's the logic of these ne'er-do-wells. Yes, I eat pork. But I don't throw out Leviticus. I eat pork because the book of Acts tells me that the dietary restrictions are no longer binding. The fornication restrictions, however, are still in place. (laughs) All right, Leviticus 21. Notice. um, With respect to the priesthood here, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people. Now, if you touch a corpse, that's defiling. Um, it's, it's, it leaves you spiritually, ceremonially, uh, not spiritually, ceremonially impure. It would then disqualify you from Passover or Pentecost or trumpets or any of the feasts, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father and his son and his daughter and his brother. Also his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may defile himself. So those are the only exceptions whereby a Levitical priest, the Aaronic priesthood, could, uh, you know, bury uh, a corpse. You know, it had to be immediate family was the only excuse. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself so it's only your immediate family your in-laws you got to let the dead bury the dead right you got to let the uh, let the non-priests bury your in-laws let the in-laws bury the in-laws because you got to stay ceremonially clean so you can stay on duty you got to maintain the the uh, ceremonial holiness there for the sake of the ironic priesthood all right uh, there's other things. They shall not make baldness on their heads or shave off the edges of their beards or make any cuts in their flesh. This has to do with the grooming. It uh, has to do with the um, practices of the pagan uh, witchcraft uh, practitioners and, and so forth. Anyway, the, their priesthood was going to stand out. It was not going to resemble other uh, pagan priesthoods. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, they shall be holy. Their job is just too important to be ceremonially unclean all the time. They shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, nor shall they take, that is in marriage, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for she is holy to, for he is holy to his God. So when when he's old enough to get married, 
He can't have a divorced woman. He can't have a harlot. And we're going to see um, how that's defined in this context. Okay? Now, Hosea was commanded to marry a harlot, um, and he did so in obedience. I think others married, other men married harlots, not because God commanded them to, but because they did. Uh, but a priest could not, was absolutely prohibited. All right, verse 9, also the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. You understand why most of the, the prostitutes were not Jewish, okay? All right. Then the high priest, he's even more severe, starting in verses 10 and following. And he can't even bury a father or a mother. All right, not even immediate family members. If you're like if you're the great high priest, then you're not bearing even f- close family members. There is no excuse for you. And then it says he shall take a wife in her virginity. Verse three. Now notice this is why it's significant. Look at the terms. And I, I'm, I've made people mad with this before. I don't want to make you mad this morning. Just look at the terms. He shall take a wife in her virginity. We know what a virgin is, or do we? Okay, yeah, we know what a virgin is. All right, what's a non-virgin? Okay, or a maid. We had the term maid earlier. Maid means virgin. Okay, that's right. That's a maid. Okay, but notice in verse fourteen, a widow, or a divorced woman, or a harlot. Those are the three categories of non-virgins that this man might marry. Okay, a widow, a divorced woman, or a harlot. These he may not marry, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. So there's your definition, all right? The only other category would be a married woman, and you can't marry a married woman, but for a single woman, obviously a married woman is not a virgin, she's married. But the only other three categories of non-virgins are widows, divorcees, and harlots, understand the implications of that? I mean, the widow, it's no fault, it's not her fault that her husband died. I mean, we're talking about fault here. She's not a virgin because she had been married. That's the widow. He's dead. Nothing wrong. If she's young enough, she can get remarried. If she's young enough, she should get remarried. She just can't marry the high priest. Okay? Likewise, a divorced woman. A divorced woman can get remarried. There's nothing wrong with a divorced woman remarrying. I'll say that again. <laughs> that makes people mad too because they got Catholic theology that says, uh, ooh, you can't remarry because you're still married to your first husband. Okay? That's Catholic theology. It's not Bible. The only prohibition here is that a divorced woman can't marry the high priest. All right? She can marry uh, somebody from the tribe of Dan or Benjamin or Reuben or, you know, she can marry any other. She can marry a Levite, just not the high priest. The high priest is prohibited from marrying a divorced woman. Okay? By the way, that verse makes no sense at all if all remarriage after divorce was prohibited. That verse is insane if you accept the premise that divorce does not leave you eligible for remarriage. All right. So the high priest can't marry. So there's a widow. She's obviously not a virgin. There's the divorced woman. She's obviously not a virgin. Both of those are formerly married women. Likewise, a currently married woman is not a virgin. 
The only other category, the only other category that Scripture allows for is the harlot. If she's not a widow and she's not divorced, what is she? Just a woman. A non-married woman that's sexually active. The sexually active unmarried woman is a harlot. And uh, the Bible calls her that. The Bible calls the activity harlotry. Um, so I don't have the verse this morning, but we'll have it before we before we leave because it's uh, I, I think it's also pertains to this. So anything outside of marriage is considered harlotry, and if it violates an existing marriage, it's considered adultery. Okay, and those are the two different terms. So we'll talk about those as well. But there it is: widows, divorced women, and harlots. Those are the only three unmarried non-virgins that Scripture identifies. So that's, that's uh, Leviticus 21. Uh, it was Joshua 2.1, Rahab the Zona. All right, Rahab was a harlot, is a harlot at the time of the chapter. All right, her house is a, is a whorehouse. It's, uh, you know, some folks don't like that. They want to put the word former in there, right? Rahab the former harlot. Rahab the, the used to do those things before she got saved. Not what it says. Okay? That was her occupation. That was her business. That's where the, the, the men had the opportunity to hide was in the whorehouse. All right. Uh, also in chapter 6 of Joshua, same character. It's with reference to Rahab in verse 17, 22, and 25. Rahab was called a Zona repeatedly. Judges 11.1, 1, Jephthah. I think it's Jephthah. Was that Gideon? No, Gideon's in... No, Je- Jephthah in Judges 11.1. 1. Judges 11.1. 1. Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. He was the son of a harlot. He was the son of Azona. And Gilead was his father, was the father of Jephthah. So he was called a Gileadite because he is actually the son of Gilead himself, the patriarch of the clan. But uh, Gilead's wife bore him sons, legitimate sons, heirs, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman, the Zona. You're not an heir. You're not a legal son. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves around Jephthah, and they went out with him, the Belials from the Old Testament, okay? the sons of Belials, the worthless fellows. Anyway, there's the story there. Jephthah ends up delivering Israel and ends up being a great hero here. But then he has struggles with his own daughter, but that's another story. Uh, chapter 16. I'm going to run out of time. Goodness. Here's uh, Samson. Went to Gaza and he saw Azona. Yeah, there you go. What are you doing there? You're supposed to be a judge of Israel. You're supposed to be leading your people. Well, there you are. Instead, he gets ambushed because he spends the night there. And yeah, 
First uh, Kings chapter three and verse sixteen. First Kings three sixteen. Uh, two of these zona, these zonoth, came to Solomon. Each one said the baby was theirs, and Solomon said, "Okay, that's right. We know the story." Um. And then all these Proverbs uses, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 23, we've seen all of those already because of the parallel terms and the other uses. Jeremiah 3.3. 3. Stay tuned for this because when we wrap up Isaiah, we're moving on to Jeremiah next. Therefore the showers have been withheld, there has been no spring rain, yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. All right. Must be a different term in verse 1 where it says you are a harlot with many lovers. Look at all those uses. In, okay, I'm not going to read them this morning, but Ezekiel 16 has several uses. Ezekiel 23 has several uses. And uh, there's 22 of them in Hosea. Because Hosea was commanded to marry Gomer, and Gomer was a zona. Okay? Gomer was a zona. But uh, those uses in Ezekiel are metaphoric uses applying to the northern kingdom of Israel, the older sister, Aholabah, the younger sister, Aholabama, the um, nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And he called them harlots repeatedly, again and again and again, in, uh, in those verses. All right. Um, there's other terms. How about the wife of a man? The Asheth of Anish. It's a man's wife. A man's wife. And you're not the man. <laughs> okay? Yeah, she's somebody's wife, all right? She's not your wife. Hands off. Okay? And time and time again, what we're finding here, the issue on this, like with Jephthah, his mother, his half-brothers and their mother, the issue is, this is, uh, this is uh, to place these relationships within the covenant relationship of marriage, places it where it belongs. And now there is mutual, sacrificial, unconditional love. Now there is uh, responsibility. The, the man that has the responsibility to provide for his wife, to, to train up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The... Um, the responsibility that says, this is my child, I'm going to discipline this child. All right? As per Hebrews, what son is there that his father does not discipline? The, the context is, you know, the, 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 one of the conference speakers last week said that he's never, uh, he's never uh, disciplined his neighbor's children. Okay? He's wanted to discipline his neighbor's children, but he's never disciplined his neighbor's children because they're not his children. His children are his children. Right? I remember growing up, I had the strictest dad in the church, and it bugged me. Why, you know, well, so and so's dad lets him do this. Well, I'm not so and so's dad. I'm your dad, and you're not doing that. Okay? So, another man's wife. And here's the thing all of the the aspect of fornication is the aspect of of, uh, no responsibilities, is the aspect of, hey, it's just. It's just free whatever. It's just, hey, there's no strings attached. There's no responsibilities. There's no uh, lifelong commitment. There's no, okay? It's not what God designed it for. 
Well, we got through four of them. There's E and F still, and then we can move on to point three. So we got a good jump on it. Let's uh, stop here. We'll pick up on it next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your blessings. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see these issues and make application. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.